Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, writer, strategist, and consultant, Matt Robeson. We're on WKXLAM and FM and 101.9 FM in Manchester. We're available by podcast, wherever it is that you find your podcasts. And if you're listening by podcast, please subscribe to our podcast. Well, from time to time here on Beyond Politics, Matt and I indulge ourselves, and we indulge ourselves with a guestless show, which gives us a chance to rant and rave and get kind of down and dirty and beyond politics. We, 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 we peek under the hood in a, in a whole different way when it's just us. And today, what, what caught my eye was a headline in the New York Times, which uh, said, and I quote, the 20-somethings who help the 70-somethings run Washington. And it was a commentary on the testimony of 25-year-old, now 25-year-old Cassidy Hutchinson before the January 6th committee, which uh, laid bare and under the radar reality of D.C. that, that while the senators and members of Congress Uh, are out front in the news media, on the television, uh, and uh, getting all the glory, the power centers may, in fact, be run by recent college graduates, uh, often with very little or no previous job experience. Um, And so you've got the geriatric set who are the face of, uh, of, our, of our government, but maybe it's those youngsters who are pretty low on the official food chain who are really uh, in charge of the United States of America. Um, and, uh, and certainly with front row seats, uh, experience or not to what happens at very critical moments, as we heard in Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony and uh, sometimes, uh, as uh, with the January 6th committee, with, with that testimony, uh, creating um, historic moments uh, that would elude members of the geriatric set. So, Matt Robeson, in addition to all your other spectacular credits, uh, you were chief of staff to one congressman, that is me. You were deputy chief of staff to another. You've run campaigns. You've consulted often. Uh, you have uh, had a lot of experience on the Hill. And um, uh, what's your response? What's your reaction? Who is running the country? I want to be really careful here because it's very easy for staffers to slip into a mode of what sounds like self-aggrandizement, over-claiming a role or an influence that they don't really have. It's sort of a catchphrase among staffers to always remind themselves and all listeners that they were not elected by anyone to anything. They are unelected. They serve at the pleasure of their boss, and they do everything that they do through the power of their boss. Their boss is the one who's really doing things. That's important to note here because I do think it would be going too far to say that the 20-somethings 
are really running the country and the geriatric set, and not even the geriatric set, but the actual elected members of Congress or the actual agency heads, the people who are in de facto and de jure positions of power are just figureheads. That's not the truth. It, it, it's, it's, it's really not true. But it is definitively true that people like Cassidy Hutchinson and people in that age group are most definitely in positions of enormous influence, sometimes with a really impressive amount of power. And it's not just proximity to power. It's what my graduate school mentor or Lin-Manuel Miranda calls being in the room, being in the room where it happens. Because if you're inside the room and if you are able to influence the conversation, then you, by definition, have power. So, I mean, a look behind the scenes might look like this. You have a member of Congress. She or he has a staff in Washington of perhaps eight to 10 people in the district of perhaps another eight to 10 people. Many of those people, especially the Washington ones, because they're so poorly paid, are going to be 22 to 26 years old. And they're going to be setting the table for the member on here's the vote that's coming up. Here are the issues at hand. Here's how we recommend you vote. And you tell me, Paul, but I would say 99 times out of 100, you're going to take your staff recommendation because the votes are coming at you so fast. You don't have time to research all these things. You're really relying on those staff to pre-digest your meal and kind of mother bird style vomit it into your mouth. Oh, that's a lovely image. Um, and that that's, I mean, even that, that's, that's an, so eloquently stated that I'm sure our radio listeners are really getting the, the digestive picture of what it's like to swallow the recommendations of your staff and, 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 and blindly get yourself to the floor to cast your vote. What am I doing here? What am I thinking? What's my position on this? Why am I doing this? Um, but at least here's the good news. If our office was any example, I had a and and with without without invoking Matt's uh, excessive modesty, I had a really good chief of staff. Certainly after the first six months when Matt came on board, um, and he came with experience, which uh, is really important. By the way. Uh, on the Hill for you to have a chief of staff, if you're a member, whether a senator or a member of the House, uh, to who, who knows a little bit about how Capitol Hill works, because the chief of staff, in a way, is the is the COO. If the if the member of Congress is the CEO, the COO, the chief of operations running the day to day uh, is chief of staff and uh, generally uh, he's responsible for budgeting because every member and senator is given is given by the taxpayers a budget to run the operations of of the office and the chief of staff um, is most often the person who helps with budgeting and, and the annual planning and thinking about who to hire and how to build a staff and what expertise is needed and where those people may be found. So I was fortunate. Matt came in with good connections, uh, well-respected, 
and was able to put together a team that uh, I would put up against any team uh, in Congress. We had very low, frankly, no turnover that that I recall in the in in the time that that I was there. There was no, you know, there was there was lots of human drama, but no uh, no crazy uh, uh, inter staff politics at least that Matt let me become aware of. So as a member of Congress- You didn't hear about the knife fight. I was insulated about the knife fight. Good, good. Uh, the arrests, the drug use, the, the pregnancies, all of that was swept under the carpet quite successfully. What I, what I mean to say is that as a member of Congress or, or a Senator, you have, there's an operation going on. It's like, it's like a startup business. Uh, with uh, half your staff in Washington, half your staff uh, at home, and all of it needs to be coordinated around the issues that you're dealing with, the votes that are being taken, the messages and communication with different constituencies. It's, a, it's, it's very interesting. And it, the hours are very long. Uh, so geriatrics generally are asleep by, you know, we want to go to sleep by nine o'clock. So it really takes people who are willing to work long and hard hours. Now, that said, the decision making process, if it's working correctly, has the member uh, of Congress or the senator as the decision maker. And often uh, a good staff will present both sides of an issue. Um, or more than both sides, if there are many sides of the issue, uh, either by brief, memo, or in meetings, and then a decision can be made. But I will tell you that very often, given, as Matt just said, the volume of votes, you could go to the floor and have to take votes on 14 different matters. Um, some of them of substance, some of them of little substance, ranging from what are we going to name this post office? There's a there's a vote on naming the post office, um, the Cassidy Hutchinson Memorial Post Office. But there's also this issue here about how banks are reporting uh, to their auditors um, uh, the 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 revenue stream from uh, derivatives and and failing a staffer who is some has expertise in the banking and financial services realm it would be pretty hard in the thrust and jolly of the everyday for a member to be able to dig deeply enough into that subject to to cast an intelligent vote and we tried our best, and I think generally succeeded at casting intelligent votes. I would say 99.9% of the time, I knew something about what I was voting on. And that was because of the work of my staff. Right. And I think if the, if the baseline question that listeners have out there is, no, really, how much power do 20-somethings, young 20-somethings, early 20-somethings actually have? The answer is it does vary, but it can be quite substantial because in addition to preparing your boss for votes, or let's say you work at an agency and, or let's say you're Cassidy Hutchinson and you're an executive assistant. Well, a lot of what you do day to day, it can be very different depending on who you're working for, the kind of position, 
But there are people who are in substantial elected or appointed positions who rely significantly on and put a great deal of trust in young staff. And if you have a boss like that and you're empowered to be entrepreneurial about your position, you can do quite a lot. You can be a young staffer who is very passionate about an issue where you're aligned with an elected official and you can network with people on the Hill. You can build up momentum for something that you want to get accomplished. You can write a piece of legislation. There is a piece of legislation. Now, I was in my 20s when I started it. I finished it in my 30s. But there was a piece of legislation that I originally wrote for one member of Congress that kind of got ported over to you, Paul, when, when you were a member of Congress. It took me five years, but we got it passed. So who passed it? Well, you did. You were the member of Congress. But I wrote it. I did the networking. I, I, I did the coalition building. I made all the small micro decisions about how it would function. And that's how we ended up with the Northern Border Development Commission, which has leveraged something like $60 million in federal funds over the last decade for economic development. The point is, the answer is it's a mixture. Yeah. Relatively young staffers can exercise a tremendous amount of authority, also depending on how powerful your boss is. And if your boss is powerful, and if your boss puts some trust into you, the answer is you can do quite a lot. And I would say that it's disproportionately more than you find in the private sector, than you find in much of the not-for-profit sector, than you find maybe the military, maybe the military, if, but, but even there, there's such a distinct chain of command. So you, you, you can really do quite a lot. But, and here's something I want to say about the Cassidy Hutchinson uh, testimony and situation irrespective of the work that the staff, that the young staffers do, there is a absolute clear uh, direct access from, for very young people to their boss um, most often. Uh, for anybody who's a, who is the assistant or an assistant to a chief of staff like Mark Meadows, uh, and Cassidy Hutchinson was the person who was his uh, uh, go-to assistant for scheduling, for for interface, for the the person. If you wanted to get to Mark Meadows, you'd go through Cassidy Hutchinson. She was that kind of assistant. It is absolutely uh, believable and totally. To totally believable that she would have the kind of access she described in her testimony, both to Mark Meadows and about 12 feet away or 20 feet away to the Oval Office where the president sat in terms of being able to hear what was going on, see what was going on. And clearly, Cassidy Hutchinson is an intelligent, observant person. <laughs> Who, whose recollection was clear, and I would say whose testimony was forged by the various experience she had had, both before working for Mark Meadows and working for Mark Meadows, in terms of the detail with which she uh, recalled, reconstructed, and observed. She's a, she, she is an example of the really kind of smart, entrepreneurial young people who she was 23 or 24 when, when some of these events took place, 
um, who had access to the highest seats of power. Right. And look, often what you find with staffers, I mean, look, I've done these episodes with Michaeline Kroll, who was Bernie Sanders' chief of staff, with Cicely Simpson, who was John Tanner's. Anyway, the list goes on and on. If you listen to Beyond Politics, you've heard interviews with staffers, because I like staffers. I, I identify with staffers. And what you will hear is that staffers do very often do a lot of behind the scenes work that really narrows down and defines what the elected officials are doing. And by the way, for taxpayers out there, for listeners, this is this is kind of what you want. You want the, the people who you've elected in office to really focus on the big picture and to make the final decisions. And you want them to leverage people who work for them to make sure that they're not, you know, I used to work for a member of Congress who occasionally for no reason would answer the phone in his own office. It was, it was just like the phone would ring and he would just pick it up. And someone asked, well, can I get the, the flag coordinator? Well, it's a service that congressional offices provide that they will fly a US flag over the Capitol for you and give it to you. And so someone was calling asking for the flag coordinator. And he, he said, well, I'm only the deputy flag coordinator, but I can take a message. And so you know, like there, there's definitely some of that, but you don't actually want your member of Congress doing that. And it can range from, you know, fairly low level stuff that staffers do to making some really consequential decisions or negotiating a lot of detail behind the scenes. Guess what? A lot of this detail in legislation really matters. It really determines the kind of policy that gets made, you know, who benefits from a bill, who doesn't, where the dollars go. My first job on Capitol Hill was for the House Appropriations Committee. That's the committee that spends the money, folks. And we like look, that committee. Yeah, that, that was that I, I wanted to be on that committee, but I never got there. I was on, by the way, financial services and government oversight. So, look, I mean, I was in grad school at the time I, there, there was and I was I was in my 20s and I was there for the summer as a fellow. And look. Most of the decisions about where the money was going were being made on the staff level. I, I want to be clear. Most of those decisions were being made on the staff level. And sometimes the, the decisions were being about individual dollar amounts were being made by people in their 20s. Most of those staffers were a little older than that. You do find you know, older staffers, especially in these ultra powerful staff positions that, that range a little older, but it can, it can go down into your 20s. And so anyway, I think all of that is, is a way of saying, first of all, your point is right. What Cassidy Hutchinson offered, she should not be dismissed as, you know, oh, she was the, she was the secretary. She wasn't really in a position of authority. No, 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 no. A lot of these positions can have incredible access, influence, and, and downright power. Number two, there's nothing about her age that disqualifies any of that. And number three, Yes, it can be quite emblematic of the experience in executive agencies, in the White House, and yes, on Capitol Hill, which is why I always encourage young people to pursue careers like this, because as a longtime staffer, old friend of mine said, this is one of the few places in America where the person with the most information tends to run the meeting, and there's nothing about one's age that precludes that person from being you. And on that note, I am going to grab the steering wheel here like Donald Trump trying to get to an insurrection because we have to take a break on WKXL. And when we come back, we're going to evaluate whether Mitt Romney 
was standing on any kind of firm ground when he said everybody in America doesn't get it. Back in a moment. I wanted to switch gears a little bit here to the article that's being much discussed online. It's trending on Twitter as we record this right now by Mitt Romney, published on the 4th of July, and it's titled America is in Denial. The subhead is too many Americans are blithely dismissing threats that could prove cataclysmic. Now, what Romney seems to be trying to do here is kind of pitch himself as a passionate centrist, as there are problems on both sides, both sides bear some blame. It's literally a whataboutism kind of article, a both sidesism kind of article. But to give him some credit, at least, he starts off by pointing to the incredible threat of global warming and saying that people on the right, Republicans, are just kind of dismissing it. And then his parallel on the left is that, in his words, as inflation mounts and the national debt balloons, progressive politicians vote for ever more spending. And he goes on, I think that the, the part that really got the most traction online was what he says about the president. He writes, President Joe Biden is a genuinely good man, but he has yet been unable to break through our national malady of denial, deceit, and distrust. A return of Donald Trump would feed the sickness, probably rendering it incurable. It goes on to say, I hope for a president who can rise above the din to unite us behind the truth. And he points to several contenders with, in his words, experience and smarts who stand in the wings. So, Look, Paul, he seems to be trying to have it a little bit both ways. Like I said, you know, it's a classic both sidesism, a whataboutism. And he's trying to say, Joe Biden, good man, love him, great, but he's failing. It's time for someone else. It should definitely not be Donald Trump. Maybe it should be me. First of all, what do you make of his starting argument that there is some blame? for kind of ignoring existential threats on both sides. Is that fair? Um, I, I, I don't give it 100% fair. Um, if I took a look at uh, how Mitt Romney and uh, the Republicans uh, ha- in the Senate uh, and in the House have treated the issue, I'd say... Um, unfair uh, to try both sides on that one. Uh, Democrats have simply been um, correct about dealing with the existential threat of climate change. Republicans have been obstructionist. Um, that, that's, just, that's just a fact. You, you look at the statistics on the votes, you look at what Democrats are trying to do, there's a chasm between the two parties on that. So um, Mitt, you may be trying to excuse your own failures on it, but that doesn't stand up as a good argument. What do you think about the equivalency he draws? I mean, look, I think he's straining just a little bit here, but what he, he seems to be trying to say is, yes, Republicans, you are ignoring the threat of global warming. And by the way, I'm very careful here to say global warming, not climate change, because climate change is a euphemism that was selected by Republican spin doctors in order to sound less threatening. Climates change from time to time, but the globe warming sounds bad. 
and I'm going to use the accurate global warming. That's fine. It. I'll, jo- I'll, I'll join, join me. you because join me. Fa- facts, what's people, what's going on is bad. So we want to use terms that make you afraid. We're going to say global warming. And I, I just for people who follow this, Frank Lutz came up with the idea of we should call it climate change. Uh, like climate, that. Climate yeah, right. change. Yeah, they change yeah. from time to time. So anyway, what Mitt is doing here is he's saying, yeah, okay, we'll own up to the climate change denialism of Republicans, but it's equally bad that Democrats are ignoring the overspending and national debt problem. Let me let me ask you about this, because, look, you we feature members of the Concord Coalition, which is the preeminent. Well, I don't want to say balanced budget, but um, fiscal restraint, fiscal responsibility advocacy group in America. We feature their experts on our shows all the time. We're, we're close with them. We, we know those folks very well. Um, I think you and I both have some sympathy for that point of view. But does that equivalence? strike you as a fair one um well let me just say i think his his criticism if it if it is leveled at both parties about um uh, uh, the lack of fiscal responsibility uh is true i went to congress preaching more fiscal responsibility I, I used I'm fond of saying you couldn't pay you can't pay for the social programs you want to have if you don't treat uh, the budget with the kind of consideration and responsibility that it needs and deserves and ultimately the bill is somebody's going to be have to pay the bill and we're paying too much of our national uh, of the national budget uh, on on interest on the debt so it, it, it's a real issue the climate issue. The global warming issue is an existential human crisis that, frankly, although it's harder to grasp in some ways because it's unseen except for its effects in terms of storms and floods and weather, uh, but it's an ex- it's huge. It's it's almost beyond the capacity of our human imagination, which was one of the reasons it makes it so easy to. Ne- deny and dismiss for Republicans. But I don't think it's a correct, it's an appropriate uh, equivalency. And look, Romney doesn't need to set up any equivalencies to, to make people on both sides mad. Okay, the conservatives are really upset because he said that Biden was a good guy. That is enough. That is heresy. That is, you know, he's going to be excommunicated. He's going to be called a rhino for deigning to say that Joe Biden, who, by the way, has been scandal free, doesn't say, despite any gaffes, the kind of crazy stuff that we heard from Trump is quite moderate by comparison to some of his party who are exercising. I mean, and Joe Biden is well known by everybody to be 
a genuinely good guy. So this is not some kind of radical Republican statement, some off the charts craziness right. that Mitt Romney is making up. Right. Just, Profiles encourage yeah, right? Mitt Romney. Yes. Mitt, he's just a good guy. And, and it's now clear to everybody that Donald Trump is a corrupt disaster. So this is not a crazy statement by Mitt Romney, but it's certainly setting conservatives off the charts, they're going ballistic, calling Mitt Romney names, well, which I think is part of why he did this, because Mitt Romney is an interesting politician. Think of this, a, a Mormon from Utah who serves as the governor of Massachusetts, who under his watch in Massachusetts comes up with a healthcare, statewide healthcare system that's basically the model for what Democrats in Congress take and pass as Obamacare. So what kind of interesting former presidential candidate turned senator is Mitt Romney? He's, he's somebody who Democrats have often pinned hopes for sanity on only to, to be dashed on the reefs and shoals of despair. Well, look, I, I want to give Mitt Romney a little bit of credit here. I see there is there is definitely a kernel of, of truth, and there is a valid point at the core of what he's saying. If his only message were, here is a list without regard to who <laughs> who murdered whom, without without regard to who on which side is being blind to what? If you just said, here is a list of long-term existential challenges that we are kind of closing our eyes to and ignoring them. And you said, climate change, in his words is one, I'd call it global warming. Global warming is one. The war for our democracy, as Michael Ludig put it, is another one. And then if you wanted to say, hey, you know what? Got a $32 trillion debt. That's that's something we're going to have to deal with, folks, because the 30 year liability of Medicare is on the order of 80 trillion dollars. So this isn't getting any better. We, we, we've got some issues we have to deal with here. And by the way, we have to fix the immigration system because, you know, it's 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 an ongoing humanitarian nightmare. If you just said that and said, and look, I, I kind of one way or another, we're not dealing with these things. We're not. And you got to lay some of the fault for that at the feet of our president. If that was it, I could kind of be on board with it. That is kind of it. That's kind of what he's doing. But in a larger sense, what he's really doing is he is drawing an equivalence. And he's saying, on the one hand, you have the whole planet is getting too hot and human civilization may end. On the other hand, you have the immigration crisis. On the one hand, which by the way, those are linked. On the one hand, you have a war for American democracy. On the other hand, we have too much spending. I don't think those sets of things are equivalent. And one is a far more uh, uh, clear and present danger and, and one, on one column. And that column also happens to be the larger scale danger. And I want to just get to the final piece of this for a second. This backhanded compliment thing of, 
well, Joe Biden's a really nice guy. It's like, if I'm trying to set up my sister with, uh, with a date, well, my sisters are happily, you know, whatever, but like I'm trying to set my sister up on a date. I might say, oh, you know, this guy, he's such a nice guy. He's a really good dancer. It's like, all right, come on. You're not selling this very well. I mean, you, what you're basically saying is he looks like, he, he looks like Shrek, right? Is, is what you're trying to tell me. You know, like if you say the president, yeah, he's a good guy, nice, nice guy, terrible leader. I mean, the whole country is failing, but no, he's a nice guy. That's the most backhanded compliment you can give someone. So anyway, I, I'm not buying it from Mitt Romney here, but I do kind of concede a piece of his core point here that, yeah, there are a list of problems we have and the political system is in general failing to meet them. Yeah, okay. I I get your backhanded compliment. So, you know, and, and on the other hand, I appreciate but Mitt, Mitt Romney's a good guy and I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. He I looks like Shrek, but you he, know. He looks like Shrek, but but I appreciate that. He's he, an excellent dancer. But wait a second, he also in no uncertain terms is talking some truth about Donald Trump, which yes. in, in my credit book credit is good really, point. really important for Republicans right now to know that, you know, OK, people, I'm I, I, I let me, I will say this. Not all Republicans are in the Donald Trump uh, cabal and camp. All right, I take it back. I some take of back. them, some of Good the point. most of them are, but some are not. And if Mitt Romney, if Mitt Romney can will honestly stand up and keep on saying, despite the everybody in his party who's trying to who's now trying to crush him, but if he'll just keep on saying, Republican colleagues, Donald Trump is bad for America, don't go there, that would be an important public service. And it is important. You remember how George W. Bush in his campaign in 2000 used to talk about the soft bigotry of diminished expectations? Well, Whoa. we have hit that moment in America when it comes to the Republican Party as of July 5th, 2022, when Paul Hodes, former member of Congress, says, you know what qualifies as an awesome Republican these days? Someone who can come right out and say, Donald Trump is bad. <laughs> and you know what? You're right. That is uncommon valor these days uncommon god, valor god help us uncommon virtue god help us come out and liz cheney it and i mean he's not even at liz cheney level no 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 but let me ask you a question tom friedman raised an interesting point in the new york times over the weekend and i, I i'm not sure i buy it but i want to run it by you he draws a potential analogy between and this came to mind because of the reference to Liz Cheney, between the political situation in Israel and what he thinks could be a path forward in the United States. In Israel, for people who are unfamiliar, there is a party on the left and there is a party on the right, and they're a parliamentary democracy. So there are many, many parties in between. And Israeli politics is raucous and difficult and problematic shifting coalitions. It is a mess. It was also a country run by a right-wing lunatic, Bibi Netanyahu, for many years. Also a criminal, by the way, who was running for re-election in order to escape prosecution. Sound familiar? Okay. So what happened was, after three consecutive failed elections, where they were unable to construct a governing 
coalition, which you have to do in a parliamentary democracy, what they came up with was a radical right-left alignment. They formed a government by taking the major right-wing party and the major left-wing party and the Palestinian party, right? And they put all of them together into a governing coalition and they came up with a deal. You'll be the prime minister this year. You'll be the prime minister next year. That's how we'll run it. And that government just collapsed. Tom Friedman's point in the New York Times was, don't overfocus on the fact that it only lasted for a year. Because in that year, they showed that you could actually have a functional, centrist, right-left governing coalition that passed a budget for the first time in three years in that country that was able to tamp down the divisive rhetoric that could bring in the Arab party as a successful partner in the governing coalition that did not result to ultra-nationalist or racist attacks on one another. And he's like, look, couldn't we do that here? And remember, back in January, he had floated this idea that was widely maligned on social media. Why not run a ticket of some Democrat for president in 2024 with Liz Cheney as the VP? And people said, well, you're crazy and impractical and that's nuts. And it shows that you know nothing about U.S. politics. But Paul, I ask you, as a former successful candidate and a member of our government, I mean, if, if, if we really are at a point where most Americans are in the exhausted majority, not part of the activist left or the activist right, would this pathway maybe finally work? Is that, is that something that you could foresee where a Mitt Romney type could get together with you know, some Democrat, a Cory Booker, I don't know, and run on a ticket together. Cory Booker, Liz Cheney. I, I'm just saying. Mitt, I mean, Mitt Romney, Elizabeth Warren. Could you do it? I mean, I understand that there are vast policy differences, and some people think, you know, just just ideological differences, abortion. Okay, okay so here, yeah, here's the answer. First of all, it's nice thinking. It's um, it would, at least on paper, and as you talk about it return or or give a sense of balance to uh, governance, uh, which is what I think people are after. We all are off balance after everything we've been through over the past few years. Donald Trump, COVID, war in Ukraine, inflation, all of it has left us all feeling unbalanced. So a sense of balance in our political system, a return to an honest give and take about policy where the good, common good, the, and, and, the, and the good of the nation as nation uh, for, with long-term implications, that would be a panacea for a lot of the whining uh, on all sides that we've heard. That said, our system really is not designed to produce that kind of result. Uh, as opposed to a parliamentary system where governments come and go quickly, where there are a tradition, where there is a tradition of multiple parties um, with varying degrees of influence, all fighting for various parts of a pie in building coalitions. We do not have that tradition of coalition building, but it's not. It it's it's not the craziest idea I've heard because if you said. If you say, you know, just taking representative people, that that the to deal with 
that, that the greatest crisis in, in America, putting aside the existential global warming crisis, which affects the planet, but that the assault on the foundation of our democracy is what we need to resolve now. Finding a Democrat and a Republican who could together um, take that challenge on, both in re rhetoric and style, and dealing with issues, even huge issues like climate change, with coming from totally different experience, totally different policy um, recommendations, but actually address the issue so that you'd have Liz Cheney saying the interests of business and industry and their and the challenge of overregulation has to be addressed in the in the global warming uh, policy and Cory Booker bringing in the the you know the the disproportionate effect of, of bad global warming policy on people of color and disadvantaged people um, needs to be addressed and and you had a, a legitimate forum for give and take on those kinds of issues we might we might just see a way out of the current imbalance and dysfunction that people are seeing the problem with this idea is what I would call the arrested development problem. You ever see the show Arrested Development? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So the the <laughs> there's a there's a character who's a who's a therapist wants to be an actor named Tobias. Sounds like me. Sounds yeah, like right, me. right, right. Well, it's the other way around. And he um he gets to a point with his long suffering wife Lindsay, where he says, you know, couples get to a point where they're fighting in their marriage, and then. Sometimes they try an open marriage and she says, does it work? And he goes, no, no, no. They always tell themselves that it'll work, but it never does. And then he goes, but it might work for us. <laughs> the problem with third parties <laughs> in America is that we always get to this point. There's always an effort, you know, John Anderson in 1980, Jesse Ventura, you know, there, there's there's always Ross Perot. There's always an effort like, oh, both parties plague on both their houses. We need a middle ground. And we've had the no labels group and we've had the, you know, purple strap. Anyway, we have all of these efforts. They always come crashing down against what you just said, which is we are so ingrained with the idea of it's a two party system. It's winner take all, loser take none. And, you know, all of these efforts don't work. But I will say this, it might work this. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, 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 it might, it might. I, I, I don't really think it would. I don't really think it would. But let me, I, I guess the way I'd put it is, right now, our current political moment is the best argument I've ever seen for trying something like this. If you could get the right people behind it. It would be super, super hard to do. But I, I, I kind of agree with you. I kind of agree with you. And this is just bringing it back full circle to Mitt Romney's core point. He's not wrong that there is a list of existential challenges, some of which are staring us down immediately. I'm talking about the threat to democracy. Some people are thinking global warming. And there is no prospect, no prospect in the next few years of fundamentally meeting these challenges. And so maybe we've hit 
a time of it's a crisis, we can recognize it, and it's time to try something radically different. Hey, look, on that note, um, I think we filibustered our way to the end of a show. Thanks for, for doing this uh, step back chat. We didn't hit as many topics as I thought we would, but uh, a lot of fun. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll have to do this again, but we're going to have a bunch of great guests in the meantime on our upcoming shows. So for that, for Paul, I'm Matt. We'll uh, see you on the next episode. <laughs>